Hello, welcome, thanks for listening. This is a history of Indonesia. If you had a typical Western European education like I did, you probably would have touched on just a few major topics in history, like maybe Egypt, Greece, Rome, and then a big jump to the Renaissance and the Age of Discovery. Pretty quickly came the Industrial Revolution, with all these events leading to a natural order where the West dominated. The underlying message was of the inevitability of European dominance, because we were, well, just the smartest people going around. Maybe this story was told with a bit more subtlety, but that was the basic gist. In Australia, one of the Age of Discovery explorers that we heard about was Matthew Flinders. Matthew Flinders was like many in the Age of Discovery, a Captain Kirk-type figure. Supposedly he was going where no man had gone before. But of course, the lands that he sailed past had been populated for millennia. He did chart uncharted land. His circumnavigation of the continent was not an insignificant contribution, but to say he was discovering anything is somewhat misleading. A chance encounter during his voyage puts a wrinkle in this straightforward story of Western discovery. When Flinders got to the north of Australia, near modern-day Darwin, the crew spotted several vessels in the distance that were clearly not European. He proceeded with caution, suspecting they were Chinese pirates. He soon discovered that these were not pirates, but Makassari's sailors from Sulawesi, harvesting trepang, or sea cucumber. They met Pabasso, who commanded the fleet of six ships, and they exchanged goods and information. They were able to communicate through the cook on Flinders's ship, who was Malay. Pabasso outlined the extent of the trepang industry. Their harvest was destined for the distant Chinese market, He told them that he had visited the Australian coast many times, and even traded with the natives. Flinders' ship was the first European vessel that Pabasso had ever seen in these waters. Flinders told Pabasso about the English settlement at Port Jackson, information important enough for one of Pabasso's crew to write down. We now know that Makassari's sailors had been visiting the Australian coast since at least 1720, and some Aboriginal rock art suggests that date could be pushed back to the 1600s. This episode is about groups like the Makassaris, just one of over 300 ethnic groups that make up modern Indonesia. They each have their own story that's often hard to untangle from the wider narratives that dominate history. Last episode, we looked at one of those wide narratives, the Ming treasure fleets, I spoke about Zheng He as part of a growing wave of Chinese influence in Southeast Asia that had been building for generations. The Chinese cultural wave was just one part of the long story of outsiders influencing the archipelago. It had been preceded by a long, ancient Indian wave and is followed in relatively quick succession by a Muslim wave. The elephant in the room in all this is, of course, the Europeans, who are about set to arrive, first as a trickle, but eventually as a torrent. But before we get stuck into the colonial period, I wanted to highlight that Europeans weren't the first to impose their ways on the archipelago. Similar types of change had been replayed over and over again in the archipelago's past. The sudden presence of new outsiders is an old story in Indonesia. I've spent a lot of time in past episodes on the ebbs and flows of regional power and the reciprocal nature of trade and culture. 
the virtuous cycle that builds between trading partners is a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Sometimes the culture precedes the trading, sometimes vice versa. That dynamic is a large part of the Indonesian story. Cultures meeting, trading and expanding each other's networks. Cultural changes take hold, then rinse and repeat on an ever larger scale. But the diverse cultures of Indonesia emerged as an equal and opposite force pushing back against these waves of change. Some foreign elements were incorporated, others rejected. I like the way Willard Hanna puts it in his History of Bali when he says that, quote, The Balinese profited enormously from a fortuitous combination of involvement and detachment. End quote. So the Balinese benefited from their integration with East Javanese culture, but as an island state, they could also withdraw and preserve their own culture. Bali's version of Hinduism began to take shape in response to much of the archipelago turning to Islam. The Balinese began to define themselves more and more in contrast to their Muslim neighbours in nearby Java, even though they all had a shared cultural past. Across Indonesia, there are hundreds of examples like Bali's with echoes back to earlier times. They can seem like time capsules of previous cultures, but they're not static screenshots of the past. They're more like a geological cross-section. All the layers of Southeast Asia's history are on display through Indonesia's ethnic diversity. Societies have organised themselves in interesting combinations of old and new, local and exotic ultimately creating new cultures. There seems to be an innate desire for distinct identity, greater control and more certainty. It's the flip side of the region's impulse to integration and cooperation. Each time cultural change came to Indonesia, some groups withdrew and tried to preserve their existing identity rather than embracing the change. Southeast Asia has plenty of land that is conducive to this urge for self-sufficiency and isolation. Fertile mountain valleys and islands are the typical breeding ground where cultural differences can be maintained. This is why Southeast Asia still boasts a thousand of the planet's 6,000 ethno-linguistic groups, or put another way, why just 8% of the world's population accounts for more than 16% of the cultural diversity. We could probably explain away all this diversity just by the physical barriers. But surely, cultural barriers have mattered as well. Each of Indonesia's ethnic groups have all at some stage resisted a stronger outside power imposing new cultural elements on them. But they have also all embraced external cultural elements. There isn't one native, pure, untouched ethnicity. Just varying degrees of cultural change and resistance to that change played out in thousands of different situations. A term used to encompass all this cultural difference is ADAT. ADAT is spelled like ADAT, if anyone remembers the 1990s videotape-based 8-track digital recorder. Or maybe that's just me. Anyway, ADAT's definition is not easy to pin down, but by understanding the evolution of the word's meaning, we'll get an insight into why it's so important to Indonesia's unity. In the original Arabic, adat meant customary law. As Islam expanded across the world, converts had to accommodate various local traditions and interests. These rules were the local adat, and often sat alongside new Islamic teaching. When Islam came to the Straits of Malacca, 
the local Adat was traditional Malay culture. As Islam became embedded with the local Malay identity in Sumatra, Adat began to describe other divides in the broader Malay world. Adat came to mean simply local norms. Not just local norms that weren't Islamic, but any practices that drew a line between one group and another. Acknowledging this diversity has been an essential tenet in holding Indonesia together. I think a former US president summed it up pretty well when he visited Indonesia and said, It is a story written into our national mottos. In the United States, our motto is E Pluribus Unum. Out of many, one. Bineka Tungalika. Unity in diversity. We are two nations which have traveled different paths. Yet our nations show that hundreds of millions who hold different beliefs can be united in freedom under one flag. But there's a lot going on with those mottos. At one level, they're about embracing diversity, but then again, they're both about imposing order and certainty. Both Indonesia and the US, recognising that citizenship is not the same as identity, have settled on an inclusive approach in an attempt to manage the differences in their countries. Ultimately, the minority identities may disappear or at least change dramatically and recognising local customs is maybe just a way of managing an inevitable transition. So, local identity isn't static. It's the equal and opposite force that reacts to the waves of external change. It incorporates some changes and rejects others. This varied response has created interesting mixes and unique societies in Indonesia. Adat is a way of managing not just the tensions between old and new, but also between the ruling and the ruled. I can't possibly cover all the ethnic groups that make up Indonesian society, so today I'll look at just a few of them to give you a taste of Indonesia's diversity. I'll be jumping around the timeline a bit, but a good place to start is around the same period we've been looking at over the last two episodes. In Sumatra, at the turn of the 14th, going into the 15th century. At first look, the Malay identity dominates and extends across both sides of the Straits of Malacca. But when you look closely, you can see the cultural history of Indonesia repackaged and repurposed in various combinations all over Sumatra. Ever since the rise of Malacca, the Malay have been associated more with the mainland side of the Straits. I guess that's why we call it the Malay Peninsula. But their identity emerged right back in the days of Srivijaya, on the Sumatran side of the Straits. The echoes of this dominant first millennium culture can still be felt a long way from its home. There are many ethnic groups associated with the Malay identity that have branched off at various times and established their own identity. A prime example in the highlands of West Sumatra, is the Manangabau, or just Manang, a highland people whose identity emerged as Majapahit expanded into Sumatra, centuries after Srivijaya's glory days. Rather than highlighting what they had in common with their coastal neighbours, they increasingly began to focus on the differences. When Majapahit took over the rivermouth towns of Jambi and Palembang in the 1300s, the Malay identity was crowded out by influence from Java. That's not to say it disappeared, but the benefits of identifying with one group over another changed. The Javanese elite brought with them their cultural preferences. 
They installed their own ruler, Aditya Varman, a Javanese prince who had a Sumatran mother and so had links back to Sumatra's elites. During his rule, he made a transition that must have been played out many times. Jumbi thrived because of the trade up and down the river. The Batanghari River, the longest river in Sumatra, starts in the highlands of western Sumatra and flows down to Jumbi and acts as a funnel for Sumatran wealth. Foreign trade was welcome along the river but became more complicated with Majapahit's rise and as Islam expanded southwards. The shared identity that existed across both sides of the straits and along the river broke down. Aditya Varman and his successors eventually began to shift their capital further and further inland. As Aditya Varman withdrew upriver, he also became more isolated from Java. His rule became supreme and he needed an appropriate myth to go with his newfound authority. He harnessed the same Hindu-Buddhist imagery that other Malay and Javanese rulers had used to cement their rule. By the end of his reign, he's referred to as Maharaja, or King of Kings, and is portrayed as a divine ruler in inscriptions and statues. So the Manang identity emerged as all identities do. It was a combination of old and new. It was part Malay, part ancient Highland, part Javanese. It became less Malay largely because the Malay identity was changing with the arrival of Islam. It became less Javanese as they became more isolated from Java. What emerged was the Manang. The Manangkabau highlands are resource-rich. It's one of the best rice-growing areas of Sumatra. Gold had attracted traders to the region since before written history. Other native forest products like camphor and benzoin were prized aromatics. Sumatran pepper crops were becoming an increasingly important commodity in the 1300s when these changes were occurring. So the Manang emerged in contrast to their coastal neighbours and they had the economic independence to resist the changes that their neighbours were embracing. This is a key thing about ethnic divides. It's not just about who you are, it's also about who you are not. In the 1400s, the highland realms like the Manangabau, just like the island Balinese, defined themselves by their religion and cultural traditions that were in contrast to their changing surroundings. Their surroundings were becoming more Islamic and more Chinese, and they were upholding what they saw as ancient traditions. To this day, elements of that identity remain. The most notable is that the Manang, at about 8 million strong, are the largest matrilineal society in the world. The firstborn daughter inherits from the mother. This practice has a long history that probably stems from the mobility of men in earlier times. It makes sense that in ancient seafaring cultures, where men were sent off for exploration, trade and such, that women had a larger role on the home front. Men who went to sea might not return for a long time, or in many cases, not at all. Female inheritance was common to Srivijaya and perhaps even Funan and maybe even further back in time to Austronesian societies. Maternal inheritance might have even encouraged young Austronesian men to set sail, as local land was tied up in communal holdings passed down through the mother's line. Some speculate that this cultural incentive to seek out new land was the driving force behind Polynesian settlements. So in Menangkabau, maybe we see a distant echo of Austronesian culture that survives to this day. Women throughout Southeast Asia in general were more empowered than Western women. 
they often had a big say in the family's finances and farming. Even the arrival of Islam has not been able to shake this tradition. The inherent contradictions between Islam and the Manang's adat of female inheritance still keeps Indonesian courts busy. In the late 1700s, by which time the Manang considered themselves good Muslims, European visitors to West Sumatra referred to the Manang as pagans. In the eyes of Westerners, the cultural practices they witnessed in the highlands were still very exotic and unlike any Islamic society they had knowledge of. Another characteristic that might be connected to female inheritance is that the Manang are renowned for their adventurism. They have a large diaspora community and a hunger for education. Maybe it's because of this yearning for education that they seem to pop up everywhere in the Indonesian elite. Mohamed Hatta, the first vice president of Indonesia, was a Manang. Two million Manang live outside the western Sumatran heartland within Indonesia and another two million live abroad. Not that far away from the Manang is a very different highland culture. Beyond the catchment of the Batang Hari River and just south of Aceh, the Batak have a fearsome reputation that they probably cultivated for their own ends. Their language indicates that they are descended from a later wave of Austronesian migration. Even though they neighbour the Manang, Bataks have patriarchal inheritance rather than matriarchal. They have never embraced Islam enthusiastically and are one of the most Christianised ethnicities in Indonesia. If you've heard of the Bataks at all, it's probably for their reputation as cannibals. They definitely practised ritual cannibalism, but the extent to which they did so is hard to say. It seems it was restricted to men, probably warriors, and it was part of wartime ritual and sacrifice. But if you want to keep outsiders away, as so many of these highland cultures do, what better way to do so than make neighbours and visitors fear that you're all man-eaters? So some of the stories about cannibalism are embellishments that were maybe even encouraged by the Bataks themselves. They had a reputation as fearsome warriors, and were hired as mercenaries in many Southeast Asian realms. So in these two Sumatran examples, we have neighbouring provinces that vary greatly. The Manang had a long tradition of integration with the region's trade networks, but their identity grew out of a period of withdrawal as the world around them changed. They eventually embraced Islam, but by that time, they had developed a distinctive identity. The Batak were never as engaged in trade as the Manang, simply because there was no river quite like the Batang Hari that promoted exchange. The Batak still traded, especially in Medan and on the west coast, but they were relatively more isolated than the Manang. They too initially resisted the tide of Islamic change coming from Malacca and Aceh. Their conversion was mostly to Christianity, and it only happened in the 20th century. The Manang and the Batak each make up about 3% of Indonesia's population. The only larger ethnicities are the dominant Javanese at about 40% and the Sundanese at 15%. So there's literally hundreds of smaller ethnic groups that make up the remainder of Indonesia's diversity. Size doesn't necessarily dictate influence. Sulawesi, the tentacled island in the middle of the archipelago, became increasingly important after the arrival of Europeans and its relatively isolated cultures became more prominent. The Makassaris and Boogies were two of the most feared and revered groups. 
the Boogies had a notorious reputation as pirates and raiders. They had island hideouts at the southern end of the Straits of Malacca from where they launched their attacks. They were warriors for the Sultan of Johor, whose growing port became a rival to Malacca after it fell to the Portuguese. Some sources say that our mythical boogeyman has his origins in the stories Europeans brought home with them about boogie sailors. It's a good story, but unfortunately not true. The Makassarese were known as skilled sailors and navigators who understood the wild eastern archipelago. Both groups were known as slave traders. Ironically, it's the crusading Portuguese who set in motion the events that shaped the way the Makassarese and Boogies imagine their identities now. The fall of Malacca to the Portuguese in 1511 was heralded as a great Christian victory back in Europe, but it probably accelerated the spread of Islam by creating a vast Malay-Muslim diaspora and gave the locals a common enemy to unite against. The Makassarese seem to have benefited from this exodus of Malays from Malacca, with new trading posts emerging on Sulawesi around this time to subvert European blockades. The history of the southwestern peninsula of Sulawesi before the 1500s is kind of lost to history. There are chronicles and genealogies of petty kingdoms from the pre-colonial period, but they were written later in the early modern period. We could speculate that they were traders and sea people just because of their location and their later prowess, but there's little evidence that they played much of a role in maritime trade before the 1500s. The Makassarese are mentioned in the Nagara Kirtagama, that Javanese text from the 1400s, but are not especially noted as sailors or traders. Their language features only a small amount of borrowed words from Indic languages, suggesting relative isolation, and there's little archaeological evidence of extensive trade. In fact, the evidence suggests that north-south trade may have been more common than east-west trade. Their reputation as the region's sailors and as fierce fighters seems to come out of the colonial period, rather than predating it. There had been some earlier attempts to introduce Islam to South Sulawesi, but the local elites rejected its many impositions, especially the idea of giving up pork. There are some lovely folk tales of local priests outdoing Muslim missionaries in strange challenges, like meditating on the edge of banana leaves or balancing hundreds of eggs on top of each other. These stories, and all the other evidence, suggest that the Makassaris and Boogies were fiercely independent people, enough so that they were usually just left alone. As the Portuguese and later other Europeans started to get a stranglehold on the trade in spices and sandalwood from the eastern archipelago, local merchants had to find alternative routes and ports. For the Europeans, this became a century-long version of whack-a-mole, No sooner would they take control of one port when another would start up in competition. We'll get into this in detail in the next few episodes, but for now, just know that Malay traders over the course of the 1500s, with extensive knowledge of maritime networks, shifted their operations far enough away from European militaries as they could, and one of the most successful new ports was Makassar. As it prospered, its importance grew. By the middle of the 1500s, a Makassarese kingdom had emerged, uniting many of the local clans. Malay merchants built new distribution networks for their goods. As they had done elsewhere for centuries, traders slowly integrated with the locals. Islam became less alien, and by the 1600s, rapid conversion was underway. 
In fact, Islam became a marker of what was local. Locals were Muslim. European traders were not. And Europeans were everywhere. Spanish to the north, Portuguese to the east, and soon the Dutch and English too. Later in the colonial period, the Dutch displaced thousands from the eastern archipelago in their attempt to control the spice trade. Many from this eastern exodus found their way to Makassar and added their knowledge of the eastern archipelago to the growing network of Makassar-linked merchants. So the Makassarese and Boogie identity emerged out of this tumultuous period in Southeast Asian history. Makassar became attractive as a trading hub as other ports fell to European powers. The Makassarese took advantage of this opportunity and built up a new centre of commerce. They moved rice and cloth east and traded them for spices and sandalwood. They continued to trade slaves. Local products from Sulawesi became more attractive. Iron ore was mined in the north. Tortoise shell was harvested. This period gave trade in the area the critical mass to become self-sustaining. The Makassar Straits between Borneo and Sulawesi became a much busier passage and new communities thrived through trade. Theirs was an alternative network that linked west to east via the Java and Banda Seas and north to south through the Makassar Straits, and they were at the centre. The shift of the Boogies' identity over this period is similar. They converted to Islam and became more integrated with the region as sailors and traders. This all seems inevitable now, but maybe this transition was a close-run thing. The Makassarese and Boogies were resistant to Islam for so long that things might have played out quite differently. Christian monks and priests attempted to set up missions on Sulawesi in the 1500s, before mass conversion to Islam had taken place. One group of Franciscans came up against an odd cultural clash. The Boogies have a priestly class called the Bisu. Gender definitions in Boogie culture aren't binary, they recognise five separate genders. The Bisu are one of these genders, basically transsexual men, who carved out an interesting niche in Boogie society. They were the priests responsible for royal rituals and displays of the king's grandeur. They were recognised as part of the royal court. They were outsiders, but respected outsiders. Their differences were acknowledged and accommodated within the culture. When the Franciscan monks arrived and explained who they were, the boogies welcomed them by sending an offering. They assumed that as a priestly class, the Franciscans were likely to prefer male sexual company and sent them young men for the purpose. Not surprisingly, the Franciscans were shocked and the attempt to establish a mission was quickly abandoned. Christian missionaries had more success in the eastern archipelago. We'll finish off the episode with a look at that area. The eastern archipelago is like the broader archipelago in miniature. There are power centres, shifting peripheries, and opposing but usually complementary cultures. In the north are the clove-producing volcanic islands off Halmahera. Halmahera is the relatively large island in between Papua and North Sulawesi. It's hard to believe that for much of human history, these tiny islands on the edge of the known world monopolise such a valuable trade. But the Maluku cultural world is about more than cloves. It stretches down to Timor, west to Sulawesi, and east to Papua. In 1999, in the wake of the Asian financial crisis, Maluku was one of the most unstable parts of Indonesia. 
Christian-on-Muslim violence, and vice versa, led to more than half a million people being displaced. The province was ultimately split in two, into North Maluku and Maluku. The religious divide is just one layer in a very long story of division that takes us back through European colonial history and further back still to the relatively early conversion to Islam. The two faiths are just the most recent additions to the region's cultural mix. We can go back much further. This is the area where Austronesian languages transition to Papuan languages, with much of the region having elements of both. The region's languages are evidence of ancient population movements and barriers to that movement. What we know about the Malukus before European adventurers documented these lands is, as always, limited. But the lack of sources shouldn't lead us to believe that the Malukus were either primitive or isolated. They had a sophisticated culture and were intricately linked to the outside world, trading with Chinese, Javanese and Arabic merchants. Ternate and Tidore, two of the five islands that produced cloves, played out a rivalry in the centuries before Europeans arrived. They were well acquainted with fleets from abroad seeking out their unique product. Their relationships with traders was always considered with one eye on how it would advantage them against their local rivals. One way they gained advantage was by accommodating the needs of traders. They were both early adopters of Islam, even though they lived far away from the centres where Islam was becoming dominant. It was very much a top-down conversion where the elites displayed elements of the faith to welcome traders, but also used Islam as a marker of status. It was a signal to their own people that the rulers themselves were a crucial link in healthy trade flows because they had a special understanding of what the outsiders needed. The rulers of Ternate and Tadore grew rich on the world's insatiable appetite for spices. Neighbouring communities, often quite resource-poor, relied on either Ternate or Tadore for trade and security. Their identity was wrapped up in this world view. They were part of a Maluku-wide society, with ebbs and flows between Ternate and Tidore, and they usually had to side with one or the other. But there was also a sense of unity across the region. In The World of Maluku, Leonard Andaya sums up this complicated picture quite well. He's grappling here with the definition and origin of the term Maluku, and then says it might not even be the right question to ask. Quote, The difficulty which the Europeans faced in obtaining a precise definition from the local inhabitants reflected the indigenous attitude toward the name. For them, it was not the literal meaning of Maluku which mattered, but rather its symbolic representation of the unity of the many islands and ethnic groups in the area. Their identification with Maluku was clearly and precisely presented in different local traditions which describe their link to a specific island community and to a wider Maluku world. These cultural perceptions served as a map to guide and legitimise political expansion, while offering an acceptable basis for common action without political coercion among many different cultures and peoples. In this regard, Maluku was neither a political state nor a stateless society. In Maluku, geographic isolation and the proliferation of ethnic groups and cultures ruled out the formation of any unities based on political force or a common ethnic identity. Instead, unity was forged through common commitment by these groups to legitimising myths 
which established the physical and cosmic parameters of their world and the social orders within it. There were variations of the myths which reflected shifts in political power in the area, but the idea of a sacred unity of the group remained inviolate. End quote. So, beyond language or geography or ethnicity, the stories they told themselves and their implied values were the cultural glue of the eastern archipelago. The rivalry at the centre of Maluku, between Tanate and Tadore, was thought to be an essential balancing between the two that benefited the whole, a kind of dualism. This was the deep culture under the veneer of Islam that Europeans encountered. It was an underlying force that affected how European control of the region played out. The competition between Tanate and Tadore accelerated with the arrival of Europeans. Tanate had a pre-existing relationship with Malacca, so when the Portuguese took control of Malacca in 1511, Tanate was ready and willing to renegotiate the terms of those arrangements. The Portuguese wanted more and better quality clothes, and they wanted their own fort on Tanate. The Sultan of Tanate was quick to accommodate the Portuguese, not because he feared their military might, although that must have been a factor. The main concern was that if Tanate didn't deal with the Portuguese, then Tadore would, altering the balance of power in Maluku. The Sultan of Tanate's authority largely came from his ability to distribute goods that came from trade with Malacca and similar ports. If he no longer controlled that trade, his position would be diminished. Sure enough, within a couple of decades, the ancient rivalry between Tanate and Tadore meant that one, Ternate was enmeshed with the Portuguese and Tidore had sided with the Spanish and its alternative trade network based in the Philippines. No wonder then that Europeans were surprised by another part of Maluku culture. Tidore's sultan often gave a daughter to be married to Ternate's king. What seemed like a bitter rivalry to European sailors was more complicated. Ternate and Tidore were more like two poles that kept each other in check They did not intend to defeat one another, but maintain the balance between their spheres. And it wasn't a mere political convenience. It seemed to represent something much deeper, a recognition of obvious differences across the region and a ritualised way to resolve those differences. So the Eastern Archipelago strikes me as almost a prototype for the modern nation. Long before Sukarno came up with Pankasila as a unifying philosophy for a diverse archipelago, the people of Maluku had their own version of unity and diversity. I've been talking about some of Indonesia's minority cultures all episode, and as predicted, I've barely touched the surface. It feels a bit unresolved and somehow unsatisfying, but maybe that's the point. There's no simple answer to the question of identity. Minority groups across Indonesia have often been the victims of those seeking stability and that's led to tragic consequences on many occasions. It's easy to pit one group against another, especially when their differences are clear. It's a much harder task to embrace diversity and attempt to turn it into a unifying force. Modern Indonesia is an attempt to harmonise the cacophony of identities that make up the nation. It's a formidable task and as we'll see in future episodes, holding Indonesia together has never been straightforward. To get in touch, email anotherhistorypodcast at gmail.com, Facebook, History of Indonesia Podcast, Twitter, at anotherhistpod, 
subscribe, rate and review, do all those good things wherever you get your podcasts. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.